0: We're starting uh, an amazing series today. I'm super excited about it. Uh, we're going to start the Gospel of John series, and it's going to be a journey. And with talking with Pastor Aaron just about, uh, it's, it's going to be an incredible uh, way to look deeply into the life of Christ and, and how that affects us. We don't want to just look and, and have it at arm's length. We want to we wanna really grasp onto it, and that's why this time is important. Um, with that being said, uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to, to John 1, I'm going to invite Ashton to come up and, and do the scripture reading. Uh,
1: John 1, verse 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known.
0: Thanks, Ashton. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good? Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet met, had a chance to get to know one another, welcome. Welcome. Uh, as Pete said just a moment ago, yeah, we are diving in for a rather lengthy study of the Gospel of John. Uh, as a church, we really value going through books of the Bible, and we value going through... Um, Lot, you know, we talk about other things, we'll do some topical series, or we'll do even a survey, kind of a, a broad overview of a book. But really what we love to do is to do kind of a deep dive into books of the Bible where we go every line, every word, because one of the things that the Bible says about itself is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. And so we like to go word for word, line by line, through books of the Bible. And uh, I will just tell you right now— um, we, as it stands, I've outlined the Gospel of John, and it's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 sermons. So my kids will be graduating from college when we finish the book. No, I'm just kidding. But the longest uh, sermon series we did uh, before that was the book of Hebrews, about 40, 42 sermons, if I remember correctly. We did Judges. You'll probably remember Judges. Also, Uh, I don't mean this to sound prideful or special or anything like that. I I never could find a single church in all my searching online that did the book of Judges verse by verse, line by line. And now having done that, I kind of understand why. Uh, The gospel of John will be for us um, much more, I think, accessible. And and here's the thing. Why why we've decided to spend such a a long period of time going through one book of the Bible is this. Number one, we do as a church, we want to have kind of a, if I can use the phrase, a balanced diet. Doing a lot of Old Testament. We did Judges and Ruth. We did the book of Hebrews, which even though it's New Testament, it's really intensely looking at the Old Testament. Gospel of John um, is New Testament. It's very accessible. And then the other thing, and I'll talk more about this in a minute, but the book of John was written specifically to help share the good news of Jesus with people who have not yet believed in him. And we as the elders and we as a church community really believe and really sense that God's calling us to kind of a new season of evangelism and outreach and sharing the gospel with people who don't yet know Jesus. And so what this sermon series, through the Gospel of John, helps us with is it gives us an every single week opportunity to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for you who have friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors who don't know Jesus, uh, my hope and my prayer is that this sermon series will make it easy for you to be able to invite them to church to say, look at what Jesus said about himself. Look what he said he came to do and to be able to let that be a conversation starter uh, for you as you share the gospel and you share your testimony with them. So with that said, let's jump into sermon number one of... $10 Uh, (laughs) Let me pray for us and let's dive right in. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather. I'm so grateful that you've given us uh, the scriptures. You've given us your word. You've given us these these pictures of the life of Jesus. The word became flesh, the son of God. And I pray right now, God, that you would help all of our focus and all of our attention to go on Jesus. All the things that are happening in our lives, whether that's personally or in our state, or our neighborhood, or our nation, or the world. You know, all of those things, even as important as they might be, none of them are as important as the words that we're about to read and hear today of the word becoming flesh and, and dwelling among us. And so I ask and I pray that you would give all of us uh, teachable and receptive hearts, and you'd guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth from your word. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. A lot of important people have lived in history. A lot of people have born, been born and died and made their mark on the course of human affairs. About 350 years before Jesus, there was a man who was born named Alexander. Alexander accomplished a great many things, so much so that he's actually known as Alexander the Great. Did you know that he conquered virtually the entire known world before his life? 32nd birthday. And there's many of you, as you hear that, you think, I got to get my life together and accomplish something. 32 years old is when he died and had conquered the entire known world. Europe, the Middle East, down into Africa. He studied, his teacher was Aristotle, uh, you know, a a kid who's got a real bright future. He's going to make it. Um, Aristotle would have taught him about the logos, the, the word, the idea, the, the truths. Uh, he would have studied philosophy. And Aristotle was taught by Plato, who was taught by Socrates, the, this long line of great philosophical minds. And then Alexander would have also been exposed to the mythos, the myths, the stories of the gods and the goddesses and, and their various uh, interlopings and, and who gave birth to who. And then this offspring killed this other god. And then they have this rather dramatic and complicated relationship It's very, Fascinating stuff. Alexander would have been reared in all of those stories. And as he went and conquered the known world, he was rumored to be the son of God, the son of Zeus. Zeus, the one who uh, Plato said is the cause of life always for all things. And he spread these ideas and he spread these stories throughout the whole entire known world. In fact, uh, it's known as Hellenism or Greek culture, Greek language being spread throughout the entire known world. You know, today, if you go to most any part of the world, you can find somebody who speaks English, right? Any of you travel internationally, and you, you almost always can find someone who speaks English. It's the, the most common language of the world today. When I traveled to Africa, to Uganda earlier this year, we stopped for the airport in Amsterdam. We landed in Uganda. We we're there for two weeks. I didn't have to learn Dutch or Lugandan. I could find people that spoke English. Well, in that time in the world, you would find people everywhere, no matter what their culture was, that spoke Greek. And they were familiar with these stories and they were familiar with these ideas and these philosophies. He, Alexander, changed the world through culture. But then he died. And about 250 years later, another man was born who changed the world, a man named Julius Caesar the Romans kind of picked up where the Greeks left off and again, conquered the entire known world. Although interestingly enough, they left the language as Greek. That still was the lingua franca. That still was the idea that, that people would traffic in. But what the, what the Romans did is they conquered the world through power and rule and authority. The Caesars too were rumored to be gods or divinities. I believe there was somewhere around 60 Caesars during the reign of the Roman Empire, and about half of them were declared to be deities. The Caesars were Lord. And as a matter of fact, anywhere in the empire, whether you were from Africa or from Israel or from Rome itself, you had to bow your knee and say that Caesar is Lord or face punishment. There was no protesting under the Roman Empire, right? Right? Whatever your opinion or however you're processing what's going on in the U.S. now with NFL players protesting, all that sort of stuff, you sure as heck didn't do that under the Roman Caesars because they would take your head off of your shoulders. So the Romans conquered the world through power and through authority and through rule and a similar claim to divinity. Then somewhere around the year 4 B.C., we don't know exactly for sure, In a dusty, dry, backwoods, superstitious corner of the Roman Empire, another little baby was born. You wouldn't want to go to this part of the empire, by the way. The the people there were very superstitious. They had stories, hundreds of years, about a thousand years worth of stories. And they, unlike the Romans and unlike the Greeks, they held doggedly to this weird belief that there was only one God and in fact, they had fought and died to protect that belief. They'd, they, they just was not a, a cultured or sophisticated part of the empire. You know, they would call it, you know, flyover country if they had airplanes back then. You wouldn't want to go to this part of the world. Nothing important happens in this part of the world. Nobody important comes from this part of the world except for this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who then changed the world more than Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great combined my main point for today is a simple one, but it's one that every once in a while as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as readers of this book, it bears repeating so that we don't lose sight of just how unique and remarkable Jesus is. The big idea is there has never been anyone like Jesus. There will never be anyone like Jesus. He stands alone in human history. Amen? Our Jesus is utterly and completely unique. And Jesus is, as we're going to see, John makes a claim that Jesus wasn't just a mere man. He wasn't just someone who lived and died, but actually someone who lived, died, and rose again, and who lives forever. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me introduce you to the author of this book, John the Beloved. John, the Beloved disciple, uh, he has some family mentioned in the Bible. He is the son of Zebedee, So his old dad, Zeb, and his brother, James. And actually, in in Mark chapter 3, you can read about James and John. They have a nickname. Does anybody remember what the nickname for James and John is? Sons of Thunder, which sounds either like uh like a, like a, maybe like a drag racing team or maybe like a WWE tag team. Like it's, that's a pretty cool name. The Sons of Thunder. We should understand that James and John probably were loud. Uh... So I like that. John was part of Jesus' closest inner circle. How many many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. Good. Not a trick question. Good job. (laughs) Twelve. But the Bible tells us these stories of Jesus would often snag Peter and James and John and kind of pull them off for some little extracurricular special events and special activities. And so John was part of this inner three. But it goes even further than that because John writes about himself in places like John uh, chapter 13 that John <laughs> refers to himself as, quote, the disciple that Jesus loved. Which is by, that's admittedly gutsy, right? You're right, yeah, the, the one that Jesus loved. Meanwhile, you've got like Bartholomew standing off the side like, what am I, chopped liver, right? Like, like well, sorry, Bartholomew, you got mentioned once and then kind of nothing else about you. So don't, don't worry about it. John is the one that Jesus loved. It says he would recline against Jesus. He he is involved in just a close, affectionate, deep friendship with Jesus. Even as a son of thunder, a loud and potentially brash young man, probably the youngest of the disciples, he had a special, unique relationship with Jesus. Which gives him a very unique perspective on Jesus. So John has a unique perspective. John's gospel is likely the last one of the gospels to be written. There's four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good job, yes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called uh, the synoptic gospels. Those three share a lot of the same content. They, you can tell, kind of borrow from each other, borrow from the same sources. John... As the youngest disciple, and he gets older, and he writes his gospel later, it's almost as if he comes in and says, yeah, I got some other things about Jesus that I want to share with you as well. A little bit of a different perspective. And so he brings some really unique uh, ideas, some really unique concepts, a really unique perspective on Jesus. In fact, um, his perspective is so unique that there's a lot of materials from the other gospels left out, and there's a lot of stuff in his gospel that's missing. Did you know that in the gospel of John, there are no parables, Did you know that in the gospel of John, there are no demons? You read the book of Mark, and Jesus seems like he's fighting with a demon every other day. But in John, there's no demons. Did you know that in the gospel of John, he only uses the phrase kingdom of God twice? Whereas in the book of Matthew, Jesus uses it every chapter. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you know, this one was new to me recently. Did you know that the gospel of John never uses the word repent? Or forgive? I'll explain more why. He's got a different perspective. He's trying to bring a different picture of Jesus. There's a a different identification of what the problem is, and so there's a different approach to the solution. He focuses on a couple of key themes. Really specifically focus on a few key themes. Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? He's both the Son of God and he's the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Anointed One. He focuses on the theme of belief and disbelief. The Gospel of John, it never uses the word repent, but it uses the word believe 98 times. If you have a a, a 21-chapter book and it uses a word almost a hundred times, that word is important. Would you agree? Belief and disbelief. And the word life. Life and death. Life and death. He uses the word life more than 50 times, 56 times. He's very intentionally crafted this book. There's a purpose statement found in in chapter 20, right near the end of the book. John says this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. He said, I wrote about these specific ones so that you may believe, there's our word, believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's that identity. And that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. It's all right there. He, John, he he rearranges things a little bit. He'll tell certain stories out of order, not because he has a bad memory or not because he's an untrustworthy witness, but because he's writing it for a very specific purpose. He's crafting it theologically, not linearly like an investigative journalist. He's doing it in a different sort of a way. And in fact, what he's done is he's embedded some things in this book. You notice how he says, Jesus did many other signs, but I wrote about these ones. Do you notice how he said that? What we're talking about here is in the gospel of John, there are seven miracles, seven signs that are recorded. Walking on water, feeding of the 5,000, water into wine. I'm getting them a little bit out of order. Raising of Lazarus. And and, and John gives us some hints. This was the first sign that Jesus did. This was the second sign that Jesus did. He, He tells us. So he's intentionally writing this book to point us to these signs. And John says, yeah, there was other ones, but I wrote these ones specifically because I want you to believe in Jesus. Did you know there's also seven I am statements from Jesus? I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. Which really made some religious leaders mad. This book is so intentionally crafted. And the last thing I'll say in this too is I want you to understand that this book was very purposely written to a mixed audience of Hellenized Jews. What I mean by this is the people who are Jewish, the primary audience of John's gospel. Again, they've got the Old Testament. They've got the stories, they've got the kings and the chronicles and the judges and Genesis and Moses before and all all these stories, hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. However, Jews in that time and in that part of the world had to live in kind of a dual agency because the world was Hellenized. So, so many of these Jews, not only did they know the Jewish stories and the Jewish philosophy and the Jewish writings, but they would have had to know Plato and um, uh, Socrates. They would have known about Alexander the Great, and they would have known all of these other things in Greek as well. And so it's Hellenized Jews. John is writing very specifically to that audience. That's enough on John. We'll learn more about him as we go. Let's get to what John says. Verse 1. In the beginning... Was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, we are one verse in, and already we should be confused. (laughs) How do you be God and be with God? How is that even possible? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That idea of light and dark comes up a lot in the Gospel of John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, parentheses, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Pause. What John are we talking about here? John the Baptist. So we're not talking about the John that wrote the book. There's another John. In the Bible, lots of Johns, also lots of Marys. So just watch out. Like you can get confused really easily we're going to talk more extensively about John the Baptizer next week. We're going to focus uh, almost entirely on him. So we can put John the Baptizer up on a shelf for a minute. I'm actually thinking about wearing camel's hair and bringing, uh, you know, those crickets that they've been serving at Safeco Field. I'm I'm going to try to bring those to pass them out so we can honor the life and legacy of John. Maybe not. All right, we'll see. There was a man sent from, John, from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. All right, we'll get back to John the baptizer in a minute. Let's slow down and look at just that first sentence for a minute, just even the first phrase. In the beginning was the word. It, words are interesting things, are they not? You, you, you with your words have the power to make things happen you can actually influence another human being you can change their day for good or for harm you can compel people to do things some of you parents are like i've tried with my kids it doesn't seem to be working it's okay keep trying Your words, they're they're almost like a part of you, but they're different from you. They're they're with you, and then they leave, and they almost take on a life of their own. One biblical scholar and commenter, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. When I speak a word, it is, in a sense, part of me. It's a breath that comes from inside of me, making the noise that I give it with my throat, my mouth, my tongue. When people hear it, they assume I intended it. But you said people comment if our deeds don't match up to our words. Again, the parents, amen. You ever gotten that from your kids, but you said we remain responsible for the words that we say and yet our words have a life which seem independent of us. When people hear them, words can change the way they think and live. Think of I love you or it's time to go or you're fired. These words create new situations. People respond or act accordingly. So, words are powerful. Amen. Your words are powerful. Who here has ever been deeply affected by someone else's words? All, all of you, if, unless you've been living in isolation for your life. Now, the Jews thought of the word in a very special sort of a way: the the word of the Lord. If you go back into Genesis 1 and it talks about how God creates, how, how does God create the heavens and the earth? He speaks. What does it say? And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be, you know, uh, velociraptors. And God said, right? That's, it's in there. It's in the Hebrew. You got to look, right? God speaks and creates all the other stories of creation are gods and demigods and they're fighting and they chop off somebody's arm and it falls and becomes the earth. It's like, this is weird in the Jewish scriptures. God creates just by speaking by a word of his power. When God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to free my people out of slavery in Egypt. What does it say? It says the, what of the Lord came to Moses, the word of the Lord. When the prophets would come and they would speak to Israel about ways that they were in sin, what would they say? They would say, thus says the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord. So in the Jewish mind, the word of the Lord is an extension, excuse me, of God himself. The word is very powerful. In the Greek mind, though, the Hellenistic mind, they also spoke of the word. The word is, by the way, logos. Logos, it's where we get our word logic. Uh, you know, an, an argument or an idea or a sustained uh, train of thought. It's also where we get our word for a logo, the representation of something. When, when you see that, shoop, you know, what do you think? Nike, just do it, right? You instantly start stretching out. You're ready to go take somebody on on one-on-one, right? The, the idea is, there's this this logos, and the Greeks talked about it like it's the organizational principle of the universe. Aristotle said that the logos, to be able to communicate the logos, is what makes humans different from the animals. And he, again, writing, he says this though, I love it. The idea of the word or the logos would also make some of his readers think of ideas that pagan philosophers had discussed. Some spoke of the word, as a kind of principle of rationality lying deep within the whole cosmos and with all human beings. Get in touch with this principle, they said, and your life will find its true meaning. Well, maybe, John is saying to them, but this word isn't an abstract principle. It's a person, and I'm going to introduce you to him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, not it, he came into the world. That's personal language. So all of this idea of the logos, the word, the logic, I want you to put that in one category, but I want to also flip over to the other side and point out something that we might have missed. Go back to verse one, if you would. It says, in the beginning was the word. Now, what could we have missed? We, we talked about the word, the logos. What did we miss on the other side, though? When, when you hear the words, once upon a time what do you instantly know is about to happen? A story. Exactly. Once upon a time, you're not expecting a lecture on like fluid mechanics, right? You're not, you're not expecting a lecture on, you know, ancient Byzantine history. Like once upon a time, there was a mo- you're, you're expecting a story. The, the Greeks called this the mythos. Oh, they love their stories. We love our stories, right? We're a culture filled with stories. In fact, you can't find hardly a culture in the history of mankind that doesn't love stories. But this is a very specific story. This is a very specific story. What When it says, in the beginning, what should you think of? What story? Creation, right? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? By his word. Oh, it's all starting to make sense. John is writing a new story. Genesis, which by the way, good on you, John, because the other gospel writers, you know, they're like, well, when Jesus was born or when there was an announcement, John's like in eternity past, you can't beat that. Stories are powerful, right? Over here on this side, you've got the logos, you've got the logic and there's argument and there's ideas, but over on this side, you've got stories. Stories are very powerful, are they not? Stories shape us. Stories can affect the way we feel. Stories can affect the way we think. Stories can affect the way that we act. I'll give you an example. Just from this last week, I was watching uh, daytime television because I was getting my oil changed, okay? I want that to be clear. That's why I was watching daytime television. And I was sitting there waiting for my um, oil to get changed, and there was um, some daytime talk show. I don't remember which one it was. And they were interviewing the cast and the creators of the sitcom Will and Grace. Do you guys remember Will and Grace? Okay, I don't don't really remember. I think my grandparents liked it. But um, uh, Will and Grace... Big show back in the, what, 90s, mid-90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And it went away. And then now, like everything in American pop culture, reboot. And so they had the cast and the creators of Will and Grace come out and I didn't really know this because I'm not familiar with the show, and they started interviewing and they started talking like this. Did you guys realize how you were going to profoundly shape the the mindset of America and this revolutionary, influential thing that you had because of this sitcom? And I'm, what are they talking about? And then I realized what they were talking about. You guys know what they're talking about? Gay marriage. Will and Grace was like one of the first Television, maybe the first television show to feature uh, homosexual couples and I think it was like an on-screen kiss and all these sorts of things. And they were interviewing the creators and the creators go, they, they literally said, we weren't trying to be revolutionary. We were just trying to tell good stories. And meanwhile, sociologists and scholars, everyone can look and say almost singularly, that TV show, more than anyone else, Friends was in there too, Modern Family, some other TV shows, but these stories deeply influenced the way that Americans think about something as deep and as profound as the nature of marriage itself from a sitcom. Isn't that amazing? Movies influence us. The arts influence us. Stories influence us. Friends, every movie that you have ever watched is a sermon. Every TV show that you've ever committed yourself to is a sermon. Every stand up comic is a preacher. I remember I used to work, uh, I would do some side work back when I lived in Alaska, at doing like set up and, and production sort of work at big shows that would come to town. And there was a, a very famous comedian filled out the arena, 6,000 people. I didn't attend the show, but I showed up there right towards the end of it to help kind of do the breakdown and all that stuff. And he was up there, and, and I'm just listening to what he's saying. He's preaching a sermon. And people are laughing riotously and they're having their thoughts and their minds influenced because of the story he was telling. Stories are incredibly powerful. We even have words for it, right? When we, when we get ourselves so invested in a story and we just really devote ourselves, what do we call that? Binge watching, right? Like I haven't seen Frank for like three weeks. Oh, sorry guys, I'm just getting caught up on, you know, whatever, orange is the new black or whatever. Stories are powerful Even the Bible itself. The Bible has all these different genres in it. Songs, poetry, law. But fundamentally, primarily, what is the Bible? It's a story. One of the greatest conflicts throughout human history is the conflict between the philosopher and the poet. Between the logos-minded person and the mythos-minded person. In our day, we might call it, you know, uh, left-brained and right-brained. Or we might call it, you know, the artist and the thinker or the um, idealist and the realist. However you want to phrase it. There's, there's lots of different ways that we've seen this conflict play out. But you can read thousands of years old philosophy and you could see the same conflict at war back then. The philosopher is a good thing, right? We need philosopher. They use reason and they use truth and they want to explain things to us. We, we need that. That can be good, right? But if the philosopher isn't careful, can become cold, impersonal, Superior and prideful. The poet, the poet can stir our affections. The poet can, can remind us that there are some things that are true that we can't find out in a laboratory. Amen? You can't prove love in a test tube. And the poets remind us of love and the truth of love. But if poets aren't careful, they can just make up stuff and kind of become untethered from truth. And oh, by the way, yes, can also become superior and prideful. That one's common. What John is telling us here is that one of the greatest conflicts about human history, the conflict between the Logos and the mythos, it all comes together in the person of Jesus. There is a truth embedded in a story. This is not some abstract principle. This is God, the Word, becoming flesh. This is amazing. There's a message to be heard, received, and believed, and it comes primarily through the vehicle of a story. Let's keep going. Verse 9, the true light, which gives, life to every, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. How heartbreaking is that to hear? The one who made the world showed up, and the world goes, who are you? Could you imagine, I've I've talked with people whose um, parents have had either Alzheimer's or dementia, and just the heartbreak, the tragedy of going to talk to your own parents and they don't even recognize you and they don't even know who you are. Can you imagine that times infinity? The God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it showing up and the people that he made, the very people he created in his own image didn't recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I mentioned earlier that John never uses the word repent. In other gospels or other um, perspectives on Jesus, the the main problem is an infraction. We have sinned against God. We've broken his law. We need to be forgiven. So we need to repent. John frames the problem a little bit differently. It's not that he disagrees with that, but he wants to show us that the problem's a little bit different. The problem is, is that we have been cut off from the source of life. It's an imperfect and, and kind of a silly analogy, but you charge your phone up overnight, Right? And then you get up in the morning and you go about your business. What's happening to your phone all day long? It's dying, slowly draining of the life that it has within it because it's not connected to the source of power. We as human beings in our fallenness and in our sin, we have been separated from the source of all life. It's as a, one Christian rapper put it, we're all slowly breathing to death. Apart from God, we are disconnected from life and the end of it is death. Disconnection, spiritual death, physical death, all of it. What we need is to be reconnected with God. So there's the bad news. And then there's good news, verse 12. But, whenever you see that word but in the scripture, it's almost always one of the best things you could possibly see. Because the biblical writers, they, they give us the bad news. And then, but, it's not the end of the story. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the, what's the word, sound city? The right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A lot of talk about our rights in the United States of America. Would you agree? What's my right as an American? We have rights for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. People are saying they have the right to protest, all sorts of things about the rights of us. It's a powerful word. A lot of uh, heat is generated by the topic of rights. What do you you actually deserve? What is actually owed to you? Here, this is amazing. The word for right there is exousi. It's power, authority, jurisdiction, a right. John says, if you believe in Jesus, you have the right to call yourself a son or a daughter of God himself. Whoa, right? (laughs) That is amazing. You get to actually so audaciously claim, I am a child of God. And it's not presumptuous it's not prideful to say, I have the right to call myself that because it's right here in the scripture. God gives us the permission to say, no, this is your right. And how does this happen? We get born again. We get re-plugged back in. God does a hard restart on the phone of our soul. That's dumb. I'm cutting that. That's, that's really stupid. I'll fix that for sometime. <laughs> right? You, get a, you have a, a new life that enters into you. When you understand who Jesus is, that he claims to be God, when he, you understand that he died on a cross in our place for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, proving that he has the power of life and that when we are connected with him, we receive this right to be called the children of God who are born not of blood. This isn't about race or ethnicity, not of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. This isn't just me saying, oh, I get to be a child of God. No, this is you being born of God. And if God's word can create universes, then God's word says you're a child of God and you don't get to argue with it. Isn't that good news? It's not fickle. It's not fleeting. It's not here today, gone tomorrow. God says, you're my sons and daughters if you receive the one that I sent. That's <laughs> amazing. In Christ, God and mankind are brought together. The great problem of Human existence is the separation of God and mankind. And in Jesus, in the logos, in this word become flesh, in this story, we get to connect with him. And our part to play in the story is we get to call ourselves sons and daughters of the creator God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm just, I'm done. It was amazing. No more incredible words have ever been spoken. The word, the logos, became flesh. Now this would have offended all of the original hearers, Jew and Greek alike. What do you mean that the word, this foundational principle, this creative force of God, however you thought of it, the word does not become Flesh. Both Jew and Greek would have tripped up massively over this. Friends, sometimes if you're a Christian, we can be so familiar with the words of the scripture that we fail to see the shocking nature of what's being said. Be shocked. Go ahead. Be shocked. Yeah, thank you. It was good. It was good fake shock, if nothing else, right? (gasps) This would have blown the minds of Jew and Greek alike that God, the Son of God was willing to add to his divinity humanity and not just to do that, but to actually dwell among us. It's an interesting insight, that word dwell. Don Carson, another scholar, says this, more literally translated, the Greek verb skanu, everyone say skanu. Yeah, good job. You learned a Greek word today. You've learned a lot of Greek words. I apologize today. It means that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us it's it's a language of tenting For the Greek-speaking Jews and other readers of the Greek Old Testament, this term would have called to mind the skene, the tabernacle. You guys remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God met with Israel before the temple was built? Now the evangelist implies God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in a yet more personal way in the word become flesh. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been camping in a tent, like I'm not talking about motorhome glamping or a, you know, air conditioned cabin. I'm talking about a tent. Like you show up, you've got a tent, you've got two sticks and a, and a marshmallow and that's what you got. You ever gone camping with somebody else? You, you thought you knew them and then all of a sudden it's tent and it's like game on. You're like, ooh, you see a different side of them and it's a mess. You ever seen that? Come on, somebody's been camping, right? Uh, not me, I only, I only motorhome, okay? Okay. There is is something very personal about setting up a tent, a, a transitional temporary living situation next to somebody where things can get messy. What the Bible is telling us, what John is telling us, is that God is not afraid of our mess. And he's willing to enter in full strength to pitch his tent in our neighborhood, to take on flesh, to live in every way like us, except for sin, and to be with us, to be with his people. This is incredible. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you're a highlighting person, that's a highlight circle, underline that phrase. Parentheses, John, which John again? Baptizer. John bore witness about him, again, Parentheses. We'll come back to John next time. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Back to the main thought. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Can anyone just say amen to that? Grace upon grace. How much grace have you received from God? More than you realize. We don't even understand the depths of our brokenness. We don't even understand the seriousness of our situation as being disconnected from God. And yet from him, we have received a lavish, extravagant amount of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Who who can live up to the law? No one. Who, Who has lived up to the law? Only Jesus. But grace and truth, there it is again, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That phrase, grace and truth, is powerful, is it not? This is not too dissimilar from the the conflict between the philosopher and the poet. Is the conflict between the grace-minded person and the truth-minded person. Any of you ever seen that conflict? Any of you ever felt the heat of that conflict? You know, the last few months we've been talking about our spiritual gifts and there's something beautiful to be said of God has wired us and created us in certain ways and God has gifted us in certain ways. Some of you have gifts of mercy and compassion and shepherding and care and you would be a naturally a grace type of person. You're the first to show up with a hug when someone's hurting. You're the first to speak a word of comfort and encouragement when someone's broken, when they've sinned or messed up. You want to encourage them that there's grace to be had in Christ Jesus. Others of you have gifts of discernment and knowledge and teaching and you want to make sure that people's heads are screwed on correctly and you're, they're thinking through things and you're... You're, you're making sure that sin isn't being made excuses. You know, you're not making excuses for sin and you're wanting to make sure that the people are thinking correctly and there's truth because you know that like opinions are kind of like, like armpits. You know, everyone's got a couple and they usually stink, right? And you're, you want people to have not opinions, but truth. There's something good and there's something beautiful about people having those different wirings and giftings. But let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. As Christians, we don't Get to choose whether we're grace people or truth people. We are called like Jesus to radically traffic in both. You don't get to say, "Well, yeah, I know I was harsh with that person, but come on, I'm just more of a truth person. I'm a I'm a truthier person." And you don't get to say, "Well, yeah, I know I did. I, I should have spoken to them and 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 said that what they're doing was sinful." But I don't. I just I'm more of a grace person. Friends, we don't get to do. We don't get to make that choice. I'm glad that that people are are drawn towards one side of that equation, one side of that spectrum or the other. But as Christians, we are called to radical expressions of both grace and truth. Amen? The Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians. We are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4. Peter says... uh, Always be ready to give an answer, a defense for the reason for the hope that lies within and all the truth people are like, hooray! And then what does he say in literally the next breath? But do so with gentleness and respect. Oh, darn! Right? (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's both. It's both and. We're going to see in John chapter uh, eight, right? The woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus comes, he, he writes in the dust and he, he stands up and says, let any of you who's without sin, you, you can throw the first stone, go ahead and kill her. If you've never sinned, by all means, go right ahead. Comes back down, draws, the people all leave. He stands up, what does he say? He says, where, where are your accusers? Do they, where, who's, where are they that condemn you? And they say, well, they all left. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. In all the grace, people are like, isn't Jesus so sweet And then he goes, now go and sin no more. Ooh. Friends, we don't get to pick and choose the Jesus that we like or the part that comes easier to us. We are called to a radical expression of both grace and truth. Only in Christ can grace and truth come together. Only in Christ can the philosopher and the poet be reconciled. Friends, only in Christ, the word made flesh, can God and man be brought together? Let me close with this thought. If you're, if you're considering Jesus today for the first time, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have questions, our sincere hope as a church is that this would be a safe place for you to wrestle and ask whatever questions you have. Because any of us who are Christians here, we've all been shown radical grace. Grace upon grace. Amen? And so if you're wrestling, if you're questioning, if you want to know about this Jesus, please, Ask questions. We want you to see who Jesus said that he is. We want you to see what it is that he said he came to do. We want you to believe and experience that love and that grace. For those of you who have been Christians, maybe for many years, maybe even some of you for many decades, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were shocked and surprised by Jesus? When was the last time that you, you looked at things like this, the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us, and you were just blown away? Has your Jesus become too safe, too comfortable, too tame, too routine, too just standard? My hope and my prayer is that the images that you have uh, that are stale would be ripped to shreds and God by the power of his Holy Spirit through his word would reveal to you just fresh take, a fresh look on who Jesus is and that you would respond growth in maturity, growth in sharing this good news with others. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, we thank you that you're willing to enter into the mess of our existence, the mess that we've created, the the devastation and the death and destruction that have come as a result of our rebellion against you. And God, we thank you that you sent your son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through belief, through trust in the identity of who Jesus says he is, that we would come to know him and we would come to have eternal life. And I pray, God, for every one of us who are here today, I pray that as you stir our hearts, we would respond. In whatever way, God, if it's, if it's coming to you for the first time and saying, God, I need to be connected to you through Jesus, or whether it's coming for the thousandth time and saying, I need to be more uh, devoted to, loved with, uh, committed to Jesus, however it is you want us to respond, I pray that you would give us the grace and the courage to do so. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm gonna invite us now to a time of response, and we're gonna respond through giving through singing, and through the Lord's table. And as we give, 2 Corinthians 9 says that, no one should give reluctantly or under compulsion. So we do not practice arm twisting here. We talk about giving. We talk about of our finances giving because Jesus talks about it. But we want this to be for you an act of worship, responding to that grace upon grace that you've received from Jesus to help the work of the ministry here, to help support the work of the ministry and the the spread of the gospel as God would give us all sorts of opportunities. So give, if you want to give online, uh, if you want to set up recurring giving, lots of ways you can give while they're collecting the offering. Uh, We'll get ready to welcome our younger students class in to join us. And let me read a few discussion questions here uh, to help us uh, this week in our community groups and in our homes. As we start out and embark on this journey through the gospel of John, what is your hope or expectation or prayer for yourself personally, so individually, but also what about for us corporately as a church family? Number two, do you identify more with the philosopher or with the poet? I saw some glances going back and forth between spouses during that section. So I think if you don't know, just ask them. And how, is that a good thing? How can it go wrong? How can you learn and grow from those who are on the other side? Number three, full of grace and truth, Jesus came. And why is this balance so hard to find? And which side do you naturally gravitate toward? And how is God wanting to grow you in both? And then number four, Jesus came to give us grace upon grace. How has that grace of God radically altered your life and and how does God want you to share that grace with others? Again, if you've been a Christian for a while, we almost could come to just feel like this grace is just kind of a normal thing instead of the shocking, radical thing that it is. And then pray, pray that God would use our time very simply to grow us as followers of Jesus and to reach new people with the message of Jesus. As they're beginning to hand out the elements for communion, I'll invite you to hold on to those together. We'll invite our musicians to come up as well. Uh, We're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and we're going to sing. And actually, uh, (laughs) I love this. Uh, Pete had the idea to sing an Advent, a Christmas song, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And I said, I think that's a brilliant idea. We can sing a Christmas song in October, right? Is that good? Okay. However, if any of you sets up your tree... There will be church discipline. Okay. So as we prepare to sing, let's let's focus our hearts on this, this symbolic act that we're about to do the the, the the bread and the cup representing the body and the blood, the word made flesh. And it wasn't just that he became flesh, he allowed his flesh to be broken for us. It says this the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then as always, there's an invitation to examine. Whoever eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, prideful manner, We'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the musicians will hold. We'll we'll take a few minutes. They'll play instrumentally. This is a time for you to pray, to reflect, to ask God's Holy Spirit to bring uh, just Jesus to life anew in your mind, in your spirit, in your heart. And as we prepare... Uh, When you're ready, eat of the bread, drink of the cup. You can pray if you're with friends or community group members or family, spouse, pray together. I encourage you to do that. And then uh, when the time's right, Pete will invite us to stand and we'll sing together. Let's pray one more time. God, thank you that you are here with us right now as we celebrate this meal, uh, this this very simple, meager meal. Um, God, I pray that we we would be reminded of just the profound depths of, that this simple act points us to the truths that just have altered our lives forever. God, I ask and I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would meet with us now in the bread, in the cup, through our song, and that we would be thankful and we would rejoice in the fact that you have pitched your tent in our neighborhood and you've entered into our mess, you've entered into our brokenness with us, and that Jesus, you have paid the price that we might have the right to be called children of God. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.